readings this morning to this part of the service. Um, apology for the coolness of the morning. We came out like normal last evening to turn on the circulator, and we came this morning. It was 53 degrees in here, and it's not till about five minutes till nine that we discovered the breaker that was off. So it's it's improving. So thank you for being patient. And someone said, well, we still have it good. We are not living in a cave or meeting in a cave somewhere and so on. So yeah, thank you, Marlon, for the message. He had a, toward the end of the message, he had a number of quotes or sayings. And I'd like to add one to them. And that uh, is to live as you're going to die tomorrow. But plan as if you're going to be here for many years. And I think we need to have both perspectives, actually, to be successful, to be actually, um, actually to have a proper perspective. We need both of those perspectives. First um, Peter three eight talks about above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. Uh, there another. Uh, to paraphrase that has it this way, he said, most of all, love each other as if your life depended on it. <laughs> and actually, in one sense, it does, doesn't it? Because God says, how can you love God if you can't love your brother? whom you do see. How can you love God whom you don't see? And so, love each other as if your life depended on it. Now, why am I saying a verse like that at the beginning? Well, because the message I have, you might need that till we're done. You might need to have a verse like that to um, to help you remember that I need to love this guy <laughs> as if my life depended on it. But right now, maybe I don't feel like it. <laughs> but uh, we trust that uh, we love each other enough to um, go through the good times when the picky picky is running well and the time when there's oil underneath it. We need love both times. Why don't we just pause for a word of prayer before we go on. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your great love to us, which, Lord, we can then express both back to you and to each other. We thank you, Lord, for the many truths, for the realities of your truth, of your word. We thank you, Lord, that our hearts can love both you and your way. And also thank you, Lord, that you have shown us your way. And do pray, Lord, you would uh, be with us this morning and bless our time together, the rest of our time here. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This message this morning is a little bit of a disclaimer. If it would be preached on a regular basis, you would say it's a, we have a misplaced focus here. But to never teach on a message like this, this morning, would also probably, I would say, 
it ex- would exhibit carelessness and irresponsibility. And so we like to teach on a subject that we don't necessarily often teach, but I would like to uh, teach on it. Two Yale professors wrote a book. And they wrote a book of why some individuals in certain racial groups are successful, while other groups, other racial groups and individuals in those groups are not successful. So they wrote a book, Why Do Some Groups Prosper and Climb Up the Economic Ladder, while other groups just generation after generation just stay at the same place. So the authors identified certain immigrant groups that are much more successful than some other races or groups that have lived here for generations. And they identified three common characteristics that they identified as the reasons for this success. The three characteristics are these individuals had a superiority complex. That's what they called it. That means that these people believed that they were special and unique and destined. Number two is they were insecure. They had had insecurity, which means they felt inadequate and they had to prove themselves. It's the opposite of entitlement. And number three is impulse control. They were disciplined to give up short-term rewards for long-term gain. And so these professors recognized that theoretically, like Abraham Lincoln, you can start at a log cabin and you can become the president of the United States. And you're able to rise even if you start at a low, at a low place. And so they identified that there are some specific qualities that caused people to be successful. In fact, he said anybody can possess these qualities. And we think a book like that would be a very welcome book, but they faced a tremendous amount of headwind. They faced a number, uh, a tremendous amount of criticism because the, the left wing or the, the liberal element of society has for generations been saying that the reason that the poor are poor is because they, they, uh, a reason they're poor and the reason they stay that way is because they are discriminated, they are de- oppressed, and there's an income equality, inequality, and they don't have the opportunities and they lack education. And so the answer is to take money from the rich and give it to the poor. That's the answer. And here comes a book that says, if you do these qualities, it doesn't matter really where you start. You can succeed. And so they faced an enormous amount of headwind. They were called discriminatory. They were called racial. They were called group profiling. They even got a new definition for this book, uh, for the authors of this book. They called them the new racials. And so they heatedly denounced the book as illegitimate, discriminating, discriminating, and racial. And it is not even, it is simply not politically correct to even discuss the issue. Well, the authors came back 
and saying, well, if we can't tolerate to look at the facts, if we can't cite statistics without being accused of stereotyping and discriminating, if we can't even bring the thing up to the public view, then how are we ever going to learn what works on the ground? If we can't actually look at the facts, we can never learn what actually works. Now, the point of this rather lengthy illustration has one point. In fact, that there are some realities or facts that are tuned out by a certain element of people because they, their perspective and their persuasion of how life should work, um, it, they have actually tuned out the fact that you can actually look at something and learn from it. But because of the pre, uh, the, uh, the way, theoretically, the way they think, they say we can't even do that. Well, this morning, I have a topic that might be a little similar to that. It can invoke a similar response from some people. For some people with a certain perspective and persuasion, the topic I would have this morning is totally inappropriate and is totally wrong. Some may actually respond emotionally to it. Others might respond with disdain and not consider it a worthwhile topic. But it's a phenomenon that affects us all. And there are a number of names for it. Um, it has been called acculturation. It has been called assimilation. And we generally call it drift or going liberal. There was a childhood poem that we don't teach our children, but they learned it anyhow. Who ever heard of the poem, Row, Row, Row Your Boat? Gently down the stream, merrily, 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 life is but a dream. The title this morning is Gently Down the Stream. I'm going to attempt to lay out this phenomenon so that we can understand in the context where we live in what happens, how it happens, why it's a problem, and what to do about it, something of that nature. One reality of going gently down the stream, as far as just row, row your boat, you don't actually have to row your boat. To go gently down the stream, you can let your oars at home. You will go down the stream. When we talk about drift, what, is that, what are we talking about? Well, drift, of course, means to move slowly away from an original position. Uh, individuals can drift. Families can drift. And churches can drift. Organizations, other organizations can drift as well. 
the drift can occur in the values that we hold or in the beliefs that we have. And it can also occur in the practical expressions and areas of how we live our lives. In the Christian context, drift usually occurs in both doctrinal and practical areas. Now, in a stream, what causes a boat to drift? It's, it's the force of the water. Not say it like this way. It's the forces outside the boat that interact with the boat and nudge it along, which we know is the water. The boat is influenced by a, by a force outside itself and yet something close by. The water is going downstream. And we could ask, the why? why? Well, water always goes downstream. Is that right, science teacher? Water goes downstream. Okay. It always takes the path of least resistance. We expect that of water, don't we? But as the water goes downstream and you have a boat in there, it creates a drag and the boat goes along with the water. And if there's no other forces applied, as goes the water, so goes the boat. Now, the analogy might be obvious to some of us. The world and its cultures in this analogy is the water. The world and its cultures are going downstream. You would expect the world to do that, right? You expect the world to go that way. But smack in the middle of the world is a boat. It's another world. It's in the water, but it's not of the water. It's it's the kingdom of God. It's the church. It's the people of God in the boat. If you had all heard David Robertson at the revival meetings, you will understand why we would call this boat the alternative society. A counterculture. A replacement society. In the boat is a society, a people, who are going a very different way than where the river is going. It has a divine call and purpose upon it. Now, you will notice that the people in the boat are not trying to change the course of the water. They're not damming up the water. They're not pumping it uphill to try to make it go uphill. Water always goes downhill. And even if you pump it up, even if you dam it, water will always go downhill. Once the Once the other forces are removed, water goes downhill. The only way for water to do anything different is to be changed somehow and get into the boat. Which is what happens, according to the analogy, what happens when you get saved. You get out of the world and you get into the boat. You get saved. You actually become no longer a part of the world. You come into this kingdom of God. So the church is not going to keep the world from going downstream. It will have an influence. Therefore, analogies break down. But actually, the end answer is really to forsake the world so that you can come to God and be a part of his kingdom.
I think that's scriptural, right? Okay. We'll get to some verses here. God's people have always been a separate people. Way back from the, in the beginning when Cain killed his brother Abel. The Bible says that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. And there's where your heathen nation starts. And then it says in Genesis 4.26, I'll just read this verse. And to Seth, to him also was born a son, and he called his name Enos. And then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And so that Eve had another son, Seth, and then Seth was born a son. And so you have these people who call upon the name of the Lord, and you have these people who went out from the presence of the Lord. And so you had a separated people there. In 1 Peter 2.11, we have this verse. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And here Christians are viewed as strangers and pilgrims. It is a part of their identity. Now, when we talk about identity of a person, you realize that we say our identity is in Christ, and it is in Christ. But a stranger and a pilgrim is part of the identity of a Christian. It's not the whole, but it's a part of it. And then turn with me to Second Corinthians, and we'll look at the, the main verse for today. Second Corinthians chapter 6, very familiar to most of us. Starting at verse 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship have righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion have light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And we could go reading on, but I think uh, we'll stop there. Why should we be separate? Because God is a separatist. Each and every believer is a saint, a person set apart from something and separated unto God. The word holy has a similar meaning. It means to be set apart for special use. That's why God says in both the Old Testament and the New, Be ye holy, for I am holy. An excellent example, or an infamous, infamous example in the Old Testament is when Lot ceased to be a separate person, and he actually integrated with a heathen society, and we know the consequences of that. Now, with this backdrop of understanding that the church is separate from the world by both intent and design, let's try to understand some dynamics which we face in our setting and society. Here, let's got some words here, and I'll, I'll take my paper with me so I know how to spell them, okay? One word we I already mentioned is this one. 
Uh, this morning will probably be a little more like a high school lecture than a sermon, but if you can put up with that, I hope we can learn something this morning. Acculturation. A definition is often used to describe a minority group that has absorbed the values of the larger culture. And there's another word. Assimilation. Assimilation is used to describe or signals how much a small group has merged into the social networks and organizations of a dominant society. I repeat, assimilation signals how much a small group has merged into the social networks and organizations of a dominant society. So assimilation has degrees. A small group can be in isolation from a society, or it can maintain its distinct values with some interaction, or it can finally blend into that society and cease to exist as a recognizable separate group. Now, we're going to look, because we are in the context where we're at, we're going to look at the Anabaptist people in light of that. And we're going to, uh, uh, as you look at, as you look at Mennonites or brethren or whatever, Amish, not so much. You see an enormous range of people under that camp. And so we're going to look at three degrees of assimilation. And one is called traditional. I could write it down, but you want to write it down, do it. One is called traditional. Maybe I should. Transitional, and transformational. Those are the three definitions that we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at each one. We're going to look at... um, we're going to have a breakdown of these three groups' relationship with the greater society. And first, we're going to look at traditional. Traditional uh, description of them would be that they have social practice and family life that tend to follow the old traditions and practices. They emphasize that we're talking about in the, in the Anabaptist camp, which would be the Amish, the, the, the old orders and things like that. They emphasize the moral authority of the church over the individual. They are typically satisfied with an eighth grade education, and they do not engage in evangelism. With large families, these groups normally grow through biological reproduction and raising children who claim the faith for themselves rather than through missions. In many ways, the larger society is irrelevant to them. They are more interested in preserving social and religious practices than in changing 
the larger world. And um, I think I will read a list that I have here out of the book, Mennonite Anabaptist World 2000. It just says about the traditional groups. Many of them use horse-drawn transportation and speak a special dialect, and they selectively use technology. They preserve older forms of ritual, of religious ritual, and they practice non-resistance, and they accept the collective authority of the church, and they wear plain clothing. Okay, then we have the one in between. It's tr- transitional. We're talking about degrees of assimilation to the, the, the dominant culture. That's where we're at. Okay, just understand it so you don't get bored. Transitional, in broad strokes, people in a transitional group come from two directions. They come from old order groups, and others have pulled away from what we would call transformational groups because they want to preserve more tradition. And these groups, they speak English and they drive cars, but they still emphasize separation from the world. And I'm going to read a little more about them. Although transitional groups share a conservative worldview with traditional groups, they tend to interact more with the outside and are more likely to engage in mission activities. Transitional groups emphasize individual salvation and individual religious experience more than traditional groups. In short, they are more individualistic in their faith and encourage personal subjective experience. Many members complete high school, but higher education is often discouraged. Virtually all of these groups forbid divorce, the ordination of women, military service, and holding political office. Like the more traditional groups, these churches will excommunicate members who violate their standards. And I'm just reading excerpts, so it's a little hard to know exactly where to stop sometimes. Yeah, I like to read. Yeah, that, that's pretty well the same. Same that I pretty well read everything I want to. Then we have the transformational groups. I want to talk a little bit about them. Plain dress creates a big divide between many of the transitional and transformational groups. Between this and this, plain dress is a major divide between them. When groups change from plain clothing to the clothing worn by the surrounding culture, they lose their public identity and visibility as a distinctive group. The chain from plain dress is one visible and clear signal of assimilation into the broader society. And transformational groups are very eager to engage to transform the larger culture in a variety of ways. And many of them would say that plain clothing simply hinders their efforts of evangelism and witness. They usually grant individual conscience priority over the collective authority of the church. Many of them have paid professional staff, such as pastors, musicians, Christian educators, and youth leaders. And, and the main thing is that these groups attempt to change the larger society. 
I would say that's probably the other main distinction besides the plain dress that he, they, they emphasize is rather than the boat concept, they would have a completely other different concept of the, the church's mission in the world. <clears throat> in fact, they would disagree probably with that. Many of them would disagree with that definition. Change the world for the better by interacting closely with it and influencing it in a positive way. In the analogy of row your boat, they don't believe a Christian should be in a boat. Christians should be in the river, interacting with it as part of it, or at least in a boat drifting along with it. Now, non-transformational, those that are not in this camp, these up here, they would see their communities as a beacon on a hill, as a light to the world, as communities. Their first priority is to be faithful to Christ by living faithfully within their community in ways that give witness to their faith. In their view, the first mission of the church is to faithfully practice the gospel in daily life. That church should be pure and unstained and unspotted by worldly contamination, and that is the best and most enduring witness to the larger world. Now, if you haven't heard David Robertson's message, I have just given five messages in a nutshell. That is basically what he said in his messages. Well, this morning, we have looked at few, three views of the Christian life. I'd like to you to think, which one, is, which one are you at? Which one do you think is the most biblical? Where do you think you find yourself on that scale? Of those three definitions. I don't know anybody want to venture a guess. I'd like to see the transitional as being the biblical view. Okay. That's where the book puts us. So I guess we're right. Thank you. <laughs> so which one are you a part of? And why are you a part of that group? Because it's the most biblical, is what Eldon said. This morning we're going to look at drift. It is well documented in history and in present experience that the normal course that occurs tends to pull individuals and groups from their more traditional moorings toward a more assimilated position. That's the normal force. It's in history. We can see it. And we can see it in our personal present experience. The pull is from that to assimilation. It varies a lot, but it, the pull is there. <clears throat> Drift is that steady, effortless, relentless force that pulls us in a certain direction. Now, we have looked at the bigger picture. We tried to understand a little bit what we're talking about in the, in the bigger context, in our cultural setting, and I, I don't know if that has gotten your mind spinning in a lot of different directions. But it doesn't do very good for us 
if we soar, soar over at 30,000 feet, that might do good for us. It'll have some, you'll, you'll get some perspective and it might do some things in your mind and you can make some application. That could be. But, um, I don't think it does very good if we don't look at our own congregational context too, as well as our cultural context. Now what I don't mean is I don't mean that all change is wrong. I do not mean that at all. Not for a moment. We actually all do change. We all change. We all move or drift from an earlier position. All of us do that. And many times change is good, especially if you think you're going to die tomorrow, right? <laughs> change is good. I remember as a boy when the old men, not the old men, uh, and my age back then, but they were old. <laughs> they were old back then, but there were people my age sitting around um, a room or maybe outside under a shade tree on a Sunday afternoon uh, after Sunday. Had, uh, had, uh, had visitors for dinner. And then you go out and visit. And this, this cigar box gets passed around. That was in my lifetime. That would sort of change our fellowship meals a little bit, wouldn't it? I think change is good. What do you think? Change can be really good. And I think of evangelism. I think it's okay to seek for effective and relevant ways to evangelize. Formats to help us to be relevant without jeopardizing our understanding as a separated people of God. I think we should seek for uh, formats that are effective without jeopardizing us. But drift is the pull into being pulled away as a distinct and separated people of God and toward assimilation into the surrounding culture. Drift is that pull from a pure and holy life and activities to those that are more fleshly and carnal. And drift is usually generational. The drift we permit in our lives, and talking about us as parents now, continues in the life of our children and grandchildren. And you can see that quite easily on generational family photos. And I want to be careful here because there are many factors that play into those generational things. So I don't want to put anybody on undue guilt that if there's a family picture where there's, there's this and that. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. But drift continues through generations. So I'd like to talk about a few areas, and this is by no means going to be at all um, exhaustive, not at all. So uh, maybe you can add some afterwards. But I, the first one I thought about is drift in music. Music looms big in the area of drift. Music is a cultural art. Music has effects and draws that I don't fully understand. I do not understand. I just know it does. <laughs> and, and I would like to talk about the contemporary Christian music, if you allow me to do that, for the most part. 
Contemporary Christian music is an ecumenical hodgepodge. In short, it is it is a mixture of all kinds of. Uh, I, I can't get it. I don't have it written down. I can't get it. But let's say it this way. In short, one of the main designs and effects of Christian contemporary music is to pull people away from a separated position and into the mainstream Christian worlds. And you can actually do a study on that. The uh, the, the musicians. Some of them, they know exactly what they're doing. They will take, they will take, um, they know that there is traditional music, church music, whatever you want to call it, the hymns and so on, and they want, they want to actually create a bridge between the, the mainstream CCM, we're going to call that, and uh, the hymns, and so they will actually put songs sort of halfway in between to, to, to gently pull. They do that on purpose. They, 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 they state it, they do it on purpose. And, and, it, and then they pull that, and the music itself, the spirit of the music, the philosophy of the music, is, is actually draws, I, I, I can't get it together, but probably the majority, I'll tell you, let's say it this way. Many of the musicians have it as their goal to bring the Christian world together. That would mean that the Christian world, when we're talking about, we're talking about the Christian world who is assimilated in a general society, not the uh, transitional and traditional. Or other, or other groups that would call themselves separated. But they have it as their goal to draw the Christian world together. And probably... The majority of those who immerse themselves into this music actually do drift from their traditional moorings towards or completely into assimilation. That is the effect. Now, it's an interesting phenomenon that the uh, CCM artists, they have actually experienced a tremendous amount of drift themselves in the last 20 years. If you would follow... Uh, many of those, when they started, and to where they end up at, they drift. They, they, and finally, they actually end up, and they actually identify right with the world and its dress and its actions and its music and lifestyles. Now, there's some that say, well, if we're going to reject CCM, we should also reject old hymns written by the Lutherans and the Methodists. In fact, we should reject the King James Bible because it was written by Anglicans. Well, the use of an old doctrinally sound hymn, like by a Lutheran, like Martin Luther, or a Methodist like Wesley, does not put our people in danger of becoming Lutherans and Methodists. It doesn't. I'd never heard of an Anabaptist becoming a Lutheran by singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther. I never heard of anybody becoming an Anglican by reading the King James Version of the Bible. But the use of CCM has 
turned a lot of traditional churches into contemporary ones. It has. Because CCM is not just music written by people of questionable doctrine. It represents a philosophy and a movement of end-time apostasy that is diametrically opposed to anything old-fashioned Bible that is an absolute enemy of what we as conservative Anabaptist church stands for. And so there's a large number of formerly sound churches that have gone down the emerging path through the influence of CCM. And I like to ask the question, are we drifting in our music selection? And so I would ask us to examine your music. It's more than music. It's a philosophy. And I can assure you that this music is not going against the drift of the world. It's going with it. Obviously, I don't think I need to say much about secular country or rock music, do I? I hope that if anyone here is listening to that, that you would recognize the own, your own wanton carnality in your heart and repent. Okay, drift. Drift in recreation. This area is not as clear-cut as music. Well, music is not clear-cut either many times. But it has a lot of variables in it. And it's many more than I can cover. And because it has so many variables in it, so many reasons and so on, I would encourage each one of us is that if there is any question at all about an activity that you are doing or that you are considering doing, maybe you should run it past a few trusted brothers first before you engage in such recreational activities. Drift and recreation. I will mention some of the recreational activities so that we know a little bit what we're talking about. First of all, we could talk about public places such as miniature golf, skiing, amusement parks and bowling alleys and public beaches or pools and fancy restaurants and car races and commercial tractor pools, the rodeos and dirt biking and other thrill-oriented sports. And I know that the lines are not always clear because there are museums, there are educational veneers that actually have both in. And so it's not always as clear-cut. But but I had to wonder whether some of our recreational activities are honoring to the Lord. Do, Do they actually identify us as that distinct and a separated and a holy people of God? Now, one of the comebacks that some people might have is whenever you place a moral value on practical things, the comeback, and I've heard it many times, well, just be busy in the Lord's work and don't be 
so concerned about such other little activities or practices. And I know, I can acknowledge there's just some value in that. But then the very same people who say that involved in, who say that, that we should be involved in the Lord's work are then involved in these recreational activities. They say, well, aren't you busy in the Lord's work? You know, it's, it's, it's not very consistent. So why aren't we so involved in the Lord's work that we don't have time or resources to engage in such activities? And obviously, uh, that can be expanded, and that has so many variables that I can't even begin. I just want to get your mind thinking about a drift in our recreation. That's all I'm trying to do. But ask yourself, would I have been comfortable going there five or ten years ago? Or ask yourself, is this a place I should never have gone because it's incompatible to the testimony of Christ? You know, we discussed the videos at a brother's meeting recently. And so we're not going to discuss it now, but it has the same it apply it has the same applications as it does in our recreation because video sometimes can be a part of a recreation. Okay, drift in our attire and grooming. Now if you need to have a verse to tell me to tell you that you are to love me and you don't need that verse yet, maybe you will now. I hope not, but let's uh I'm gonna I'm gonna go here, okay? <laughs> We know the verses well. They wear modest apparel, not costly apparel, not jewelry, not elaborate or fancy hairstyles. Because of these directives given to us by God and coupled with the concept that the people of God are a stranger and pilgrim bunch and that we are to be an humble and serving people, we embrace the idea that the church will look different than the surrounding culture. We accept that. Based on the biblical principles, we fully accept that. It has been called out, and it has a completely different mission. Now, it is noteworthy that the transformational churches, the ones in the bottom there, believe that attire or separated clothing hinders their efforts to evangelize and witness. And so, the first point is, if we consider our clothing and we consider drift, the drift in our clothing can have a a holy purpose attached to it, such as I want to blend, I want to not have the gap so big, I want to not offend them, I want to make it easier to bridge the gap. So, that kind of drift can have attached to it a holy purpose. But it's drift nonetheless. It is the route towards assimilation. But there are some other drifts that are not so holy. What would some of them be? It's a desire to stand out, to look pretty, to position oneself as popular and free. Or it may be from pressure from our more assimilated or drifting friends. Or a desire not to look so different from our co-workers. And so I ask you, is your clothing generally free of ornament, orna, 
Ornamentation. Are your shoes common, practical, and not drawing the eyes to them? Are you drifting from a more practical and modest position to a position less so? And if you don't know, maybe you should look at some older family photos. Daughters, is your veiling as large as your mom's? Has it shrunk in the past several years, five years? Boys and girls, does your hair grooming reflect the recent fads and styles? May I ask why? You know, we as a church, we generally, we generally uh, avoid writing down rules because we know some of the negative things that come with rule. When you have something written down, you can't hardly change it. So we avoid that. It's easy to miss the spirit and the heart with a rule book. So we desire and attempt to encapsulate the spirit and the heart here in the church service and in the brothers' meeting and in our homes and encapsulate the heart and the spirit of God and his will for us. That's what we attempt to do. And out of that, then we formulate practices. And because we don't have a rule book, some people come to our churches because they can do things here that they couldn't do at their former church setting. The problem can arise when they have the concept that there are no hard and fast rules. And at some point, they realize that this church does have some rules. And they do have some expectations, and there are some standards that they are expected to keep. Or that is actually expected of its members. And then there are others that come into, I'm not talking about personally, I'm talking about our churches in general. That's what I'm talking about now. There are others that come into our churches, and if the church is weak in maintaining standards, if it's drifting, they soon began to look around and say, hey, I know you don't have a rule book, but is that okay? Is that acceptable here? Are you going to allow that? And those who are not as concerned about drift or are comfortable with the way things are going often respond in predictable ways when this subject is brought up. They, they come with charges. They're trying to legislate righteousness. They're trying to man-made holiness. They're nitpicking. They're critical. If everyone would be as concerned about the loss as they, they should be, then we wouldn't be talking about these minor details. Now, one of the difficulties, it, now, one of the realities here is that we probably, every one of us here, I would guess, every one of us here is concerned about drift to some extent. I would I can't imagine there wouldn't be anybody that would not be concerned about drift. If, if you would want to be assimilated, you could go out this afternoon and you could do it. You could go to Walmart and buy your clothing today. 
But all of us are concerned about drift to some extent. But our perspective of what is acceptable and what is not does vary. And that is where the difficulty comes many times. So my main desire this morning has to been to educate us on the phenomenon called assimilation and drift. And as we are more knowledgeable of it, we can be more aware of its dangers. I'd like to read another verse, a couple of verses, and if you want to turn to Proverbs 24, and we'll be done here very shortly. Proverbs 24, we need to be knowledgeable so we can be aware of its dangers. I went past the field, uh, verse 30. I went past the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns and nettles had covered the face thereof and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well and looked upon it and received instruction. Now that verse in the area of drift um, talks about that if if we are slothful or we are not vigilant in this area, our field will grow up with weeds and nettles and we'll have, an, uh, we'll have a predictable result. It says he was either slothful or he was void of understanding. Void of understanding, he did not recognize what was actually happening. And drift is that way. Either... Either we, we can be slothful in it, or we cannot recognize the dangers. And both of those will lead to a, a uh, nettles and thorns and a wall that's broken down. Now, it's true. We Christians are not to be motivated by fear. We're not to let fear drive us. It's, oh, we're going to... We better, you know, really put some fences up real quick. No, don't let fear drive us. Not to drive us to unwise or unrealistic positions. But if you and your family are playing near the top of a cliff, um, somebody had better have a healthy sense of fear at that place. I remember in our, our boys at our other house, we had a, short driveway out to the road it was slowly sloping towards the road and uh, our little boys would go under riding toys and play on the driveway and that that driveway sloped down and then there was the road and we I don't know maybe five feet or whatever from the driveway we drew a white line and said so far and no further and we enforced it it was very important to us that they do not go past that line. There was a healthy sense of fear, a realistic sense of fear. And, and so I will make a plea that if we discuss things at brothers' meeting, that we have a healthy sense of fear of what can happen to a congregation or a family or things if things just slide. Have a healthy sense. Recognize where they're going. So, as we discuss things in brothers' meeting and other times, there we are somewhat in the honeymoon stage of a church. 
I don't know how long the honeymoon lasts. But we're in a honeymoon stage of the church. And during that time, there is a reasonable effort made to chart a well-defined course of both perspective and practice. And so I would plead now that most of all, love each other as your life depended on it. Thank you very much. God bless you.